Welcome to another episode of A People's Theology. I'm your atonement theory shitposter and A People's Theology host, Mason Menega. In this episode, I talk with Eric Atchison. Eric Atchison is an ordained minister in the Disciples of Christ's nomination and an author. He has been published by The Christian Century, Christianity Today, and Sojourners. Also musically featured throughout this episode is Jameson Elder. Jameson Elder is a singer-songwriter from Nashville. You can get connected with both Eric and Jameson in their work in the links in the episode description. If you're a fan of A People's Theology, it would bring me no greater joy than if you gave the podcast a five-star rating and review. Tell me what you like about the podcast. Also, if you feel so inclined, please support my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash There are multiple tiers with wonderful rewards, including papers I write to even a book club. Enough of my rambling. Enjoy more inspiring and liberating theology. Today, I have Eric Atchison. Did I get it right? I know last time I think yeah. I got it right. Yes. <laughs> Beautiful. Uh, Eric Atchison is here today, and uh, Eric is an author and a Disciples of Christ clergy. Uh, love those disciples. Very unknown within the American denomination uh, kind of, I don't know, infrastructure. I, I, I don't know what the right word Monopoly. Right, but, monopoly. But, uh, you know. Nonetheless, the disciples are great people, uh, and you recently authored the book, and let me pull it up right here, uh, On Earth As It Is in Heaven, A Faith-Based Toolkit for Economic Justice. I read the book. It was so good. I really appreciated how like accessible it was, how like just organized it really was. I loved, loved all of it. Uh, but before we start talking about the book, and I know I asked you this question before, but, you know, maybe things have changed since. Uh, who is Eric Atchison to Eric Atchison? Uh, Eric Atchison is this, uh, this millennial pastor who has the, the, the baldness and uh, bad joints of a, of a boomer pastor. But <laughs> still has a heart for uh, sort of bridging bringing the church into this sort of intergenerational space. I figure if I can take uh, my, my uh, boomer baldness and my love for, um, for economic justice and social justice, I think really is part of this increasing diversity from not just millennials, but Gen Z coming after us are going to be even more diverse. Mm -hmm. Um, I've really enjoyed getting to do that sort of across uh, Jeepers, almost 10 years now I've been in parish ministry. Um, and that's sort of been my driving passion behind both my first book, Oregon Trail Theology, and uh, On Earth As It Is in Heaven. And it's a passion that uh, sort of defines a lot of my work, but it's also something I get to share with, um, uh, with my wife, Carrie, who's a medical doctor and does a lot of work in... Uh, sort of uh, justice and anti-sexism and anti-racism in mm. medicine, mm -hmm. and that we'll get to hand down to our uh, one-year-old daughter, Sadie. Wonderful. Love it. So as you mentioned, your book is about economic justice mm -hmm. and theology and Christianity. What was something you maybe learned about economics or theology or the Christian faith mm -hmm. in general while writing this book? Yeah. So because the book really sort of is a is a project in breadth rather than depth right. i really had to dust off uh some of my old bachelor of arts religious studies education that maybe i hadn't had to think about in you know 12 or 15 years and uh one of the things that i sort, sort of felt that fell by the wayside for me but i realized was 
sort of incredibly important to sort of how we think of God today is that sort of the, the Middle Ages of Europe and the, the economics of the time can really contributed to how we understand the cross today, or mm. uh, I, I, not, we being a significant part of, of US Christianity um, as this sort of uh, uh, payment to this angry Lord to whom we aren't really children so much as peasants or serfs. And that sort of is at the heart of one of the chapters. And it's, uh, it's something that's a thousand years old and I'm willing to bet most of us probably don't recognize sort of the economic roots of that theology. Mm -hmm. um, and that really sort of became uh, the, what I wanted to be sort of the common denominator among a lot of the illustrations that I used in the book was, here's this common thing, but do we understand the economic roots under it? Mm -hmm. Right? So... Mm -hmm. A lot of us may know the story of, for instance, of Joseph and the, you know, the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Mm -hmm. Do we understand the economic roots behind the whole seven years of, of plenty, seven years of famine, and the literally the enslavement that resulted? Like we know the song, like we know the lyrics from yeah. from the musical, but do we know the sort of the the economics uh, and the theology mm -hmm. behind? Mm -hmm. This is not your first book. What mm -hmm. did you learn about yourself while writing this book uh, versus maybe the other book that you've written? <laughs> that uh, that the first book is is often the it for me was really a book of the heart, where I sort of took that passion for intergenerational ministry and just kind of dumped it out all over 150 pages and counted on my editor and uh, publisher to kind of make it make sense. Um, this was a little more of a book of the head, still something I was really passionate about, but something that I'd spent many years studying at uh, Seattle University. And uh, I realized that um, it can be a lot slower to write painstakingly uh, academic prose and then take that, that prose and try to make it not academic. Mm -hmm. Academic prose can be some of the stiffest, yeah. least readable prose out there. Uh, so I learned that, that, that whereas organ trail theology just sort of flowed out, uh, this really was sort of a, a brick by brick mm -hmm. construction. Mm -hmm. At the beginning of the book, you point out an example of economic disparity uh, with the wealth of Mark Zuckerberg. Yes. Uh, and you mentioned that our economic system mm -hmm. isn't broken. It's designed as it should be, right? Or it's mm -hmm. working as it should be. Mm -hmm. In what particular ways is our economic system designed to create such an economic disparity? Mm -hmm. um, I, think it, I think it's sort of been designed that way really from the get-go. When you think about how uh, a lot of the people who came to the Americas either were um, uh, African or Caribbean peoples mm -hmm. kidnapped and, and trafficked into slavery, or were white Europeans indentured into servitude. So the entire migration is built uh, to the Americas is built on the generation of wealth for a, a, a sort of detached elite. Mm -hmm. And in that respect, uh, this is working exactly as designed and has been for centuries, whether it's sort of the Mark Zuckerbergs and Jeff Bezoses of today, or whether it's the Vanderbilts and Rockefellers of yesteryear. Um, you have these cycles of tycoons who uh, are, are sort of detached from the, the, the people who produce their wealth and then are able to use that wealth to essentially make sure that nothing ever happens to that wealth. And if right. anything, it ends up growing. Um, and so uh, you, you see that sort of cycle after cycle and maybe the, the means changes, you know, because, um, you know, the, the Rockefellers got rich in oil. They didn't get rich off of social media. Mm -hmm. uh, Standard oil was what, was what made them. Um, but 
you know, Facebook and Amazon and Microsoft today are the, uh, you know, are the standard, like the standard oil of yesteryear. Right. Um, and whereas eventually the Justice Department did step in and break up standard oil, we have not been able to stand up to uh, sort of these market forces today. Yeah. And the church, you know, might not be able to litigate this in a court of law, but we certainly are able to litigate it in a court of of the public square, of public opinion. Mm -hmm. And that's what this book is designed to do, is to give us a tool to, um, to, to, to advocate sort of across a variety, uh, an array of, of what we're supposed to be literate in, uh, the Bible, theology, history, and present day. There's a girl back home I'm gonna call And hope she's still awake With all these faces I've never seen I wanna hear a voice I know From a heart that never changes And found its way to me She's a fine wife A purest kind one of the things you mentioned at the beginning is that there's an economics of, or there's an economics in lots of biblical narratives throughout the whole Bible. What's an economic vision that you see in the Hebrew Bible in particular? Um, what I really see is this devotion, ironically, to family as mm -hmm. as as sort of uh, economic justice. And I know we like. Uh, politicians will pay lip service to family values these days. What I don't even know what that means anymore. Yeah. But you'll hear a lot about family values from a lot of my more, I'll, I'll, I'll say, conservative or fundamentalist brethren. But really, a lot of the the, the prophetic nature of the Tanakh, as well as a, a, a significant amount of the Levitical law, was about keeping families together on their ancestral land. And there's something so powerful in that. And um, it's something that I think maybe certainly in Christianity, we do not have a full appreciation for because the way we tend to approach the Tanakh, I think often can be really exploitative and um, sort of, uh, I mean, I'll go ahead and say erase, er erasing of the, the Jewishness of the text. Mm -hmm. Um, but this is a, 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 a Jewish story that comes from this connection to, um, to the family unit on ancestral land. And the taking of that means of wealth was something that was so concerning that there were all of these rules put in place uh, to either mitigate it um, or to reverse it altogether in the, in the Jubilee year. Hmm. And uh so you see these sort of uh, precepts in place and then when those precepts get ignored or cast aside the prophets rise up against the kings who had sort of cast those norms or those expectations aside to say this isn't right right uh so it's 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 sort of this very profound I think like family values vision that yeah. maybe is very different from the way that Christians have sort of taken that term. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think if, if we actually pay attention to traditions that are, that aren't ours, whose, whose reading material we've kind of taken and, and tried to make into ours, um, we would actually learn a lot. Mm -hmm. um, that reminds me a lot of, there, there's just an interview I just did um, with a Quaker minister, and he mentioned to me that he's done a lot of work with the Poor People's Campaign. Mm -hmm. And one of the things they mention is, uh, and this is coming from him, coming from the Poor People's Campaign, is that in terms of mass media, there mm -hmm. may not be any mass media that's ever existed and still does not exist today other than the Bible that speaks positively on behalf of the poor yeah right and so we're yeah. seeing this totally uh in both the hebrew bible and i my next question is about mm -hmm. the economic vision in the gospels acts yeah. and epistles but all that's to say like there is an economic vision that wants to speak 
and uh, positively on behalf of the poor. And really no other piece of mass media do we have um, throughout history really um, at that scale speaks mm-hmm. as highly about the poor as the Bible does. So yeah. with that said, uh, what, yeah. what economic vision, you may, you can riff off that if you want. Yeah. Uh, but my second question is what, what economic vision do you see in the gospels, acts yeah. and epistles? No, I think, so the Bible is ironically, I think, incredibly prob- uh, problematic for, um, for Christians who would set that aside be- precisely because the Bible is so accessible. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's it's public domain. It's been translated into Lord knows how many versions these days, and uh, you can access any of them. And the need then to sand down those visions was sort of a huge part of a lot of the ministries that came up throughout America, which is also something I write about the the sort of the bankrolling of, of ministers who really tried to take the gospel in a completely different direction mm-hmm. than the vision that was laid out in it, um, which quite simply was you give until it hurts. Like in, um, I'm teaching a confirmation class at the, at the Presbyterian church I currently serve. And one of the lessons uh, in that curriculum is the story of the widow uh, who gives just a few copper coins in juxtaposition to uh, uh, people with means who are giving vast sums. And Jesus says she is giving all that she has to live on. Mm-hmm. We are called to give until it hurts. And uh, I find helpful, ironically, what, of all people, what C.S. Lewis said about charity, which he said, charity is supposed to pinch us. Mm. It's supposed to hurt. There should be things we want to do and cannot do because what we are sacrificing has made that impossible. Mm -hmm. And I don't see that when someone like Jeff Bezos says, well, the only way I can spend all my money is on space travel. You're not pinching yourself enough. Right. You know, Um, that's, that's sort of the fundamental problem is that we have this vision where the rich man is asked to give up his wealth and he can't because it pinches too hard. Mm Mm-hmm. And the rich and the and the and the, the the sort of the young rich man today, whoever you want to imagine him as today, doesn't want to give that up because it pinches too hard. Mm-hmm. It, it, we're supposed to feel this sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Like sacrifices is, is far from a, a bad word. I think a word that in some ways maybe needs to be reclaimed. And um, that sort of sacrificial giving, we see it from the poor in all sorts of ways. It, we make it so expensive to be poor. Mm-hmm. But the minute we try to make it a little more expensive to be rich, the, it, it, it becomes the, the degree of difficulty immediately escalates. Right. It reminds me a lot of um, when the Amazon fires were happening and mm-hmm. Amazon donated something like $600,000 to yeah. the fires, which is great, That's like $600,000. But I remember I did like the numbers crunching on it mm-hmm. and that was like equivalent to like less than one cent. If I mm-hmm. like based on like how much I make, yeah, yeah. how like one cent so, worth of yeah. me donating, which I mean, like so, I would gladly donate one cent yeah. to the right. Like, but th- that's all to say, right? Like that in comparison, mm-hmm. they're really not pinching themselves all that hard no. uh, to when it comes to their charity. No. And, and, and I think it's tough with, especially in, in, in the context I've spent most of my career of a church that really ministered to the poor and was made up mostly of the poor and, and middle class, where really we were expected to fill in a lot of social safety nets that had been just eviscerated by our elected officials. And we were expected to do so through the poor basically redistributing what little there was to spare among each other. Mm. You know, our, our people would be contributing to the church, which funded our our benevolence fund for for people who were facing evictions and shutoff notices that came from donations from poor people. Right. So it's, it's the poor redistributing what little uh, is there kind of uh, um, the, the, the crumbs of the, of, of, uh, of the, of the pie um, while whole slices are just being taken off the table. Right. Right. Um, And so there's this disparity that, uh 
sort of creates conditions to make to to ensure its own existence mm -hmm. and will even create threats in order to ensure its own existence mm -hmm. um which is why uh you see uh movements like the poor people's campaign get branded as socialist or as communist when in point of fact they are simply I find honesty so strange When she hands me that drink I start to open up a little And say what I need to say And she's a fine one Purest kind, kind uh, Speaking of which, you know, there always have been Christians that have been subverting the status quo economic systems, right? So as many as there are Christians who are kind of co-opting the religion to wealth, there are many Christians throughout history who have always been attempting to subvert that, uh, that co-opting and subverting wealth accumulation. You know, you mentioned Poor People's Campaign. Uh, what are other modern movements you see in America of Christians subverting America's economic wealth? Yeah. Um, I'll name a couple. Uh, one that I cite in a couple sections of the book is this movement. Uh, it, I wouldn't call it a movement, it's, but different churches have autonomously decided to do this, to buy out medical debt and then mm -hmm. forgive it. Mm -hmm. uh, RIP Medical Debt is one organization that partners with churches to do that, um, which is based entirely in biblical principles around uh, the year of Jubilee and around the Acts 2 and 4 principles of the early church where resources were pooled and given according to need. Mm -hmm. So there is this acute need because healthcare bankruptcies, uh, I think, if not a majority or at least a plurality of personal bankruptcies in the United States. Mm -hmm. And so you have churches that have the means to do so, taking up offerings or uh, or moving funds around to buy out buy up this medical debt and then forgive it. Um, and ideally there obviously wouldn't be medical debt to forgive, but until we reach that point, um, I'm beginning to see more and more churches uh, choose to do that. And the great thing about that is nobody needs to tell you to do that. Like mm -hmm. a an individual congregation can come up with the means to do that. And even individual authors can come up with the means to do that. Another disciples pastor, uh, we share the same publisher, uh, is doing that. He's donating royalties from his upcoming book to RIP Medical Debt to buy mm. it, to, to buy buy out buy out uh, uh, people's healthcare debt. Um, so that's one that I see today. And the other that I see today is the conversation that's beginning to take place in churches around uh, reparations mm -hmm. for either for slavery, indigenous genocide, or both, um, because that wasn't even on the table. Uh, in, in, in a lot of public discussions, even a few years ago. Right. And then, of course, came uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates's essay. Mm -hmm. um, and all of a sudden, the Overton window moved. Um, but now you have congregations, uh, and, and in some cases, even denominations asking, okay, if, this is, if we are saying we are a, 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 an anti-racist church or an anti-racist denomination, what does that look like now? Mm-hmm. Um, and the net result is you have, for instance, seminaries uh, setting aside millions of dollars in reparation funds, uh, like uh, Virginia Theological Seminary, mm -hmm. I think might have been the first. Um, I'm hoping uh, more seminaries do that. I'm also hoping congregations begin to do that, mm -hmm. of researching whose indigenous ground am I on, or for, real, or for historic congregations that were around in the antebellum years, how did we benefit from chattel slavery? And doing something similar, even if it's on a much, much smaller scale, of asking how can we begin to make amends? Mm -hmm. And in some ways, that's, that's sort of, that's maybe a very basic tenet of Christianity to, uh, to make amends. But uh, I think when, it's, when we make it so difficult for ourselves to admit wrongness, and especially historical wrongness, mm -hmm. Uh, it also seems very feels very countercultural. Mm -hmm. There, there is an aspect there too. Furthermore, 
of reconciliation. I talked with Lenny mm-hmm. Duncan several months ago, uh, and he has this great chapter title in a book in his book uh, where he says, uh, first it's repentance, then it's reparations, then it's reconciliation. So the mm-hmm. reparations part, right, is that sort of second, mm-hmm. uh, that second step that yeah. leads ultimately to reconciliation. Um, and so, yeah, for for denominations, for individual churches, even for individuals themselves, that is a, a step in the right movement if they want to see reconciliation, yes. right? Which is yeah. sort of like eschatological vision mm-hmm. that we have as Christians is yeah. this reconciliation between all peoples. Well, there's some steps that are required. You just can't just have it, you know, yeah. without, but think, without but, anything. But, but I think one of those steps is this uh, part of part of reconciliation to me is coming out of your own shell to meet the other party or mm, other mm-hmm. person or other or people. And I think that's something that the church is having a really hard time doing now where it's bunkering in either politically or especially economically, where a lot of churches are feeling a mentality of scarcity because membership roles are, are plummeting, right. budgets are plummeting. We can't afford to think about something like reparations. Okay, but what if you did it anyway? What if you mm-hmm. took that leap of faith? What if you sort of did as, as the gospel would ask us to and, and, and sort of step out of that shell, you know, mm-hmm. and, 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 and travel as Jesus did to the, the 10 cities of the Decapolis and back and forth from Capernaum to Galilee to Jerusalem and back. What if you took, we as the church took, took those steps? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I like that. Uh, there's been a relationship between Christianity and economics since its very mm-hmm. existence. Um, but something that's new, it's a new wrinkle within this relationship is climate change. So how mm-hmm. does climate change uh, affect the mm-hmm. necessity of Christians to be part of this sort of re-envisioning of a more justice or yeah. a more just economic system? How, how does yeah. climate change kind of affect all of this? Yeah. So um, I'll talk about it in a couple of ways because I think um, – Earlier, it was seen as a theological issue, and here I'm thinking of when uh, a number of uh, evangelical Christians began to join voices with mainline Christians uh, on climate change as a sort of a creation care issue of citing sort of the Genesis creation story. Mm-hmm. Uh, Richard Sizek began doing this around 2005, 2006, um, but it sort of stayed in that theological realm for a while until uh, sort of some of the economic costs began to become more apparent. And those economic costs um, in, in going into the future can be manifold, not just the changing of um, accessibility to natural resources, but of human migration and the creation of uh, basically of climate refugees. Uh, ultimately, climate change is going to create people who are jobless, homeless, or both. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the theological question at the heart of that economic one is what then is our responsibility to the people who will be made either job, jobless, homeless, or both? Because if climate change is human caused, which everybody who is rooted in this plane of reality believes, that means that it is also our responsibility to make, again, those same reparations or amends for the people who are going to bear those consequences. Because the people who probably are most likely to bear those consequences are probably going to be poor to begin with and are probably going to belong to uh, communities that are poor to begin with. And so that responsibility, again, is sort of part of that gospel imperative that maybe didn't come up quite at first when Christians began talking about climate change, but definitely needs to be talked about now. Mm-hmm. Um, I would add to that the, the, again, sort of circling back to that notion of what do family values look like? To me, family values look like caring for your children such that the world they are inheriting is habitable, mm-hmm. which sounds incredibly basic to say, but that's the that's Greta Thunberg's whole point, right? Is, is 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 she's telling adults, "You have failed me. You have failed us." Yeah, and 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 we we are the ones who are going to be stuck with the consequences, not you, us, uh, people who are, are in her generation, Gen Z. Uh, 
really frankly even more so than us millennials and mm -hmm. so uh, if we're going to have a conversation about family values, why are we not having a conversation about our children's inheritances? Today I have Jameson, Jameson Elder, and uh, Jameson, you make I think really quite well done country music and uh, <laughs> indie folk stuff. Um, I, I'm I'm not the biggest fan of a lot of like the mainstream country music, which n knowing the country that you're kind of making, I'm sure you might have some hesitations about some of that stuff too. But, yeah, but I'm a big like one of my favorite artists of all time is Johnny Cash, and you really kind of embody that like old styled oh man country. i really think you do i don't know if <laughs> that's the purpose you. if that's what you're trying to yeah. aim for but it, I, I think it's coming through heard that before that's okay. crazy uh, you got that um, like that, that folky country twang going on i love it yeah yeah there's definitely like i i think i've avoided the word country for a long time uh <laughs> and stuck with like americana but there's enough like especially with the way we record guitars where there's enough it's like yeah this is this has enough of a foot in country that it's yeah. probably country yeah totally i <laughs> i the mean longer, the more it happens i mean that's kind of like the <laughs> the unfortunate thing is what country means to a lot of people now is really not what it used to be at all right like johnny cash was strictly like a country artist right uh yeah but you know, in, in terms of like how we understand country now versus how we understand like something like Americana, uh, yeah. Johnny Cash would now be categorized more as like Americana or yeah. folk yeah. rather than For country sure. based on the way that country is kind of turned more into this like alternative yeah, rock. Yeah. Pop thing. So anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Which, cool. which, is, which is interesting uh, that, you know, someone who is a legend of their own genre, one of the founders of their own genre, wouldn't even be considered of that genre anymore. But yeah, anyway, yeah, um, sure. all that's to say, I really think you kind of embody that sound quite, quite well. Um, so let's talk a little bit. It's been almost four years now since you released your last album. Yeah. Uh, how does that feel now, four years later, to think that this thing that I'm sure at one time for you was just a little baby, it was just a little infant. What does it feel to know that it's four years old now? Yeah. Oh, man, it's it's really weird. So I wrote and recorded and I actually released that re record. It came out like three months before I got married. So life is completely different. Yeah. It obviously came out in the beginning of 2016, so the world is completely different. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and I, I think, like, from a artist perspective, both of those changes happening at once are, like, pretty quick, like, getting married and then just, like, lots of world changes uh, happened really quickly in a way that, that sort of disrupted how I write, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Uh, so I, I look back now and there's part of me that's like, man, that was uh, a lot of a lot of songs and a lot of work. Uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> sonically, I, I think, um, you know, it's it's funny, like uh, that was the record or the project where I first started to feel like I had a sound that I liked. Mm -hmm. Um I don't think it's like uh let's do the con Johnny Cash one. That seems to work. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> just, I'm just kidding. I'm just stuff. kidding. Well I mean but I kind of embraced that part though. Like the mm -hmm. I let myself put more of a foot in country than I think I had ever expected to. Or at least that like rootsy feel. Um mm -hmm. if anything I'm going more that way. <laughs> um <laughs> I think the the records that I'm listening to now are uh, like I, I don't think I don't think Prodigals and Thieves is like a super produced record like mm -hmm. in terms of like there's not a ton of like shimmer and shine on it um, you know we we did a lot of that with just three guys in a room mm -hmm. um, and but now I listen to it and and there's stuff 
now you know there's always stuff you want to change but but the, some of the stuff i'm writing now is so much even more even simpler honestly mm. Mm. Um, which is really weird uh from somebody who grew up as like a guitar riff guy because mm. like these need to be complex or interesting and now it's like nah let's just write good lyrics <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> and hope that and hope that somebody likes them i think i think uh i don't know learning and, and sort of teaching myself how to write more specifically mm-hmm. um you know like i grew up in uh like the youth group thing and Switchfoot and U2 were mm-hmm. kind of the bands that everybody listened to, and those are big, like massive global themes, mm-hmm. like in the song, like yeah. they're big ideas. Yeah, um, which is great. That's I can't write like that anymore. <laughs> like I don't know. I I've learned. I've gotten more and more specific, and more and more like, um, I don't know. Just trying to paint a, a uh, paint a picture of like a single moment instead of painting mm-hmm. like a big. Yeah. Yeah, totally. That's really interesting. Um, so you talked about, you know, four years ago, you, you created this thing. Life has really changed your, your songwriting, uh, interest, uh, and just your songwriting in general has certainly changed. Um, where, where are you kind of headed now? Like in terms of like sonically and lyrically, um, you clearly are not doing the big idea stuff, uh, and you're really trying to capture moments lyrically, but maybe even like uh beyond that like lyrically what are you trying to explore are there specific um, themes that you're trying to do and then sonically what what are you trying to explore uh you know post four years from the, the last album yeah sonically is easier um i i've i mean i've always loved like kind of 70s rock um <laughs> kind of the stuff that like dawes is going back to try to recreate mm-hmm. um or but that that sort of sound um so pretty simple um yeah, a little bit less uh like big drums, big guitars and more like uh I guess you know, less less wall of sound, less of that and a little mm-hmm. bit more like hey, this is just a little bit more sparse, there's a little bit more air mm-hmm. um in between the parts and and in between the words. Lyrically, man, that's a really good question. Um I think I'm kind of all over the map and I, I'm I'm a weird in that I usually don't know what a song is about until six months after I've written it. Because uh, <laughs> I'm, uh, yeah, I'm just a little slow on the uptake there. Um, I think uh, a lot of it, I think I've been writing more um, from a place of what are some of the things that I think I've always thought were true or always believed that I don't necessarily believe anymore Mm. that aren't or that have just been proved wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I mean that you can go macro and say like, they're certainly, I mean, since getting married, there are certainly like ideas of love that I had Mm. pre that, that if you listen to like old songs, it's like, Oh wow. You don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) um where now i would change that um i think there's elements of faith in the same way too it's like yeah i'm not i'm not in that place anymore and Mm -hmm. trying to figure out how to write that while at the same time not being uh a jerk to the version of me Mm -hmm. you know like totally which is a weird path to walk as an artist because you don't like there's a temptation to throw away everything that you've done before mm-hmm. but then there's also mm-hmm. the temptation to like hold on to that all really tightly um and so it's kind of yeah i feel like i'm sort of had like this process is pushing me to reteach myself how to write um and partly because i didn't write a whole lot for uh, after i put out the record which is it's pretty typical of most people like when you put out a record you don't write a lot after you put out a record because like you you wrote a lot mm-hmm. for the album uh and so in not writing a lot uh a lot of stuff changed in that time mm-hmm. um, and so there's part of me that's like i'm having to teach myself how to do this again mm-hmm. totally. <laughs> and find new places to look so. yeah totally um 
You, you mentioned to me that you and your wife are currently writing uh, yeah. an album and doing a project. Are there any other things kind of in the future that we could expect? Any like solo, new solo stuff? Uh, yeah. Yeah. So uh, my wife and I are doing a project called Elder. Um, it's E-L-D-R. Uh, we dropped a vowel because that's cool, I guess. Um, that's, that's, that's the thing right now. <laughs> uh, yeah, so we're doing some stuff together. Um, I've gotten to work with her a lot. I got to produce some of her stuff, um, which is always fun. Uh, as far as my own, my own thing, um, my plan is to put an EP out towards the end of the year. Okay. It's going to be weird because um, now was kind of the time I had planned to be in the studio working on that uh like with mm-hmm. a band and everything mm-hmm. so part of me is going the i mean i have a, a studio at home i have a little bit more free time than i had before uh with you know all the social distancing stuff so i'm hoping to like start dropping a couple songs in the next couple months mm-hmm. great um, just that i've written kind of during this period because they feel like if if they uh aren't heard in this moment they might not make sense Mm -hmm. that makes sense if that yeah Mm um so i'm trying to they'll be they'll be pretty simple mostly Mm -hmm. acoustic guitar a little bit um, and then hopefully a a band ep towards the end of the year awesome yeah that's great So, well, I just wanted to, to thank you so much. I really love the music, like I mentioned before, that kind of like old school country feel, the Americana feel, the indie folk feel. You just, you put it all together really well. You write a really damn good song. And thank so <laughs> uh, I, I'm just, I, I, I was very pleasantly surprised to know that, you know, there are people out there that are making that sound uh, and making yeah. it sound really good still. So thank you, uh, thank you so thank much you. for having your music. Yeah. And thank you for having me. Appreciate it. You're playing the keys. Hold on, boy. You're playing the We're sort of talking about a lot of these things abstractly and and very importantly, Um, but I could see, you know, like a listener listening to this that's really gung-ho, really excited Mm -hmm. about economic justice as it relates to their faith. What are some really practical, tangible things that they as Mm -hmm. an individual would be able to um, participate in that, you know, sort of participates in that re-envisioning of our economic systems? So that was at the core of sort of the, my, my thesis at Seattle University that sort of birthed this book was um, in the midst of this economic tumult that uh, affected my then hometown in Longview, Washington, uh, as the two, two of the three largest workforces in town went on strike, the largest paper uh, and pulp plant and uh, one of the school districts, the mill workers and teachers went on strike one right after the other. Mm. And by and large, congregations uh, didn't have a lot to say. Hmm. And so what can be said in those conversations and what can be done to be in solidarity with the workers? And so that became my entire thesis was going out and actually asking the workers and pastors, what what does the church engaging with this issue look like to you? And we spent two months on a series of surveys um, of both sort of closed, uh, close-ended and open-ended questions to try to come up with some uh, level of agreement or consensus of here's what churches can do. And overwhelmingly, what uh, worker, the workers really asked for were churches to not pretend that, these, that, that, that this sort of um, uh, economic injustice wasn't happening. Mm. But to acknowledge reality, sort of like acknowledging the reality of climate change, and then using the the moral sort of um, sphere of the church, the fact that it has a public space and a public platform, to actually get these views out in the open and and talked about, to actually sort of move the Overton window in communities, so that 
uh, workers can feel backed up, they can feel supported, but so they can also feel like they're being heard. Mm-hmm. And this got mm-hmm. borne out as well when I would I sat down with one of my old friends who's now a, a labor organizer. He said that there are some really unique ways that people of faith can actually act in their communities for workers in their communities. Mm-hmm. Because even though we're in this sort of age of, um, of unaffiliated religion, the truth is that in a lot of contexts, religion still carries a certain soft power, a certain cultural cachet, Mm. and how we use it still matters. So whether it's engaging with local leaders, because honestly, that's where a lot of the governance around labor law takes place, is on the state and local levels. Mm -hmm. So whether it's engaging with local leaders or engaging with the workers themselves uh, and engaging if they have a union or are trying to organize with one, asking what they need. Mm-hmm. Because that, that was, it sounds simple, it sounds brutally simple, but that was the whole crux of my research was what do you as, as unions need from the church mm-hmm. right now? Yeah, there's like this listening accompaniment uh, yeah. phase or um, uh, activity that's required yeah. of us. Because if you look at a lot of worker uh, organizing and uh, labor activity, it's about getting people's attention, whether it's the picket lines or the rallies or the, the, the public letters. It's about getting attention. And the church can't simply, it needs to stop sort of closing its ears off to those voices, but instead begin engaging those voices. Mm-hmm. And the good news is you don't have to be a pastor to do that. You don't have to be um, a, a, a bishop or regional minister to do that. Um, you can simply say, how can my how how can I, as a member of my church or as a member of any spiritual community, engage with you and what you need? Mm-hmm. And I feel like that is a, it's a simple but important dimension that really can be fostered in local communities. Mm-hmm. How do you see this book being inspiring and liberating theological work? Um. Inspiring is, 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 is so lofty for, uh, for, for, for an old, old church curmudgeon like me. Um, to me, liberation means being, you have been set free from something. Mm. And I think there has been a lot of misinformation and disinformation about what the Bible really says about wealth. Mm and poverty that we maybe need to set ourselves free from. Whether it's the the myth that the Bible says that God helps those who help themselves, or the myth that wealth was and poverty were secondary rather than primary issues in scripture, there is so much that we need to liberate ourselves from in our relationship with God as revealed through scripture. And to me, that sort of comes from, from what Jesus preaches in the Gospel of John. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Once we know this truth about Scripture, I feel like we can be set free from the misinformation that is sort of in the interests of people much richer than us and who will always be much richer than us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, God is not asking us to help them. God is asking us to see God in everybody else as well. Um, If we are going to say that God is on the side of the poor, well, then there is an awful lot about what we hear and what we are told to be liberated from. Mm -hmm. And maybe that, that, that is inspirational as well. I, I would, I would hope that it is, but in a lot of ways, I think we're all works in progress in that way because it's just so baked into our culture, uh, this wealth worship, um, that this liberation can be a, a, a long, long, long journey, uh, but one that I think is exceptionally worth it. Mm-hmm. Last question. How can listeners get connected to you and your work, Eric? Yeah. Um, best way is on Twitter. I'm on Twitter at Rev Eric Atchison. That's Eric with a C, Atchison, A-T-C-H-E-S-O-N. Um, I'm also online at ericatchison.com. And uh, 
those are probably the easiest outlets to find me, but you'll also find me pop up uh, elsewhere uh, on Reddit every Christmas Eve when I do an Ask Me Anything as a Parish Pastor, um, <laughs> and on Facebook at Rev Eric Atchison as well. Perfect. Thank you so much. Uh, again, I really appreciated the book. I, I think its accessibility and its clear organization is just really helpful um, as I read through it. Um, I, I really appreciate it. It's one of those books that, you know, anybody who I think is sort of a beginner in mm. in thinking about these sort of things between economics and Christianity, I think it's the perfect book for them. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I wish I had read this book several years ago when I was first kind of thrust into thinking about economics and Christianity. So uh, I, I really appreciated it. I, I hope it's doing really well for you. And uh, hopefully it was uh, inspiring and liberating to just simply write for yourself. It, 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 there is something that, that sort of lifts off you when you, I just sent in the final proofs to my publisher and there, there, it, it is, it, there is this lighter feeling mm, that comes with it, great. but um, I'll pass on your kind of feedback about the organization to my editor. He Perfect. really, uh, he really made sure that it stuck to, s- stuck to that structure. And organization, <laughs> so. Thank you so much, Eric. Thanks, Mason. If you'd like to connect with both Eric and Jameson and their work, you can find links in the episode description. Thank you again for listening to another episode of A People's Theology. If you liked what you heard, please give the podcast a five-star rating and review. Also, please support the podcast at my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Menega. And remember, friends, go and be the theology to the world that inspires and liberates. This heart